as I was working on this sermon, I, the Holy Spirit took me in a different direction than when I had started some prep work a few weeks ago, and, and I came to realize, really, uh, the title of this sermon is probably more appropriately, Finding Rest. Finding Rest. Uh, before we hear our New Testament scripture for today, uh, let's go to our God in prayer. Gracious God, we give thanks for this, your word. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit at work through this, your word, we would hear your voice, your leading, your molding, your shaping, your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand and, and gives it light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. In heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember doing a month of Army ROTC training at Fort Lewis in Washington State. They had all the cadets in those old barracks, bunk bed after bunk bed lined up in rows. And after a few days of training, going from kind of the earliest in the morning to the latest in the evening, there was nothing better, right, than when they finally let lights go out and you really didn't care how old the mattress was, how thin the pillow was, how itchy the blanket was. You were so tired. There was nothing better than that deep sleep. And yes, at 4.30 in the morning, Sergeant Davis would bust through the door and cry, wake, out, wake up, and he'd have his metal baton. He'd like to bang on the, on the sides of those bunk beds. But then one particular morning, I remember Sergeant Davis busts in at 4 in the morning with the same routine. And I actually don't remember any longer why. And I know that's only 30 minutes earlier, but I distinctly remember this feeling at that time. We're all working hard, training from before dawn until late in the evening. We are plenty exhausted. Why do we need to add yet one more thing? And I do wonder if that, any of that sentiment isn't how the Israelites heard this passage so many years ago. Isaiah is prophesying at a time of significant transition as the people of God are coming back from exile in Babylon and they're rebuilding their home, their temple, their worshiping life, and, and they're working hard. In fact, our scripture makes it clear that in many ways they are ideal temple-going people. They, quote, delight to learn God's ways. Scripture people. They call regularly upon God that God's judgments be made known. People of prayer. They're regularly fasting, regularly disciplining their bodies with, with heads bowed deeply and lying in uncomfortable sackcloth and ashes. Spiritual discipline. Scripture, prayer, spiritual discipline, they are doing a whole lot of faithful things. And then God blows open the doors and tells the prophet Isaiah to shout his voice forth like a trumpet. 
The trumpet was an instrument often used to summons people to war, an instrument that the sound was meant to convey the urgent seriousness of what it was about to be communicated. Isaiah announced to people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob, their sin. Essentially, wake them up. They have it all wrong. Now, the people understandably speak up. Again, they've, they've been doing quite a lot. God, why... Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why do we humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Or, or quite literally, why do we afflict ourselves and you do not see? The people are bowing their bodies, even wearing down their bodies and well-being to the point of affliction. And so absolutely, they wonder why God is barreling in with a trumpet call with added work when, if anything, God, God should maybe notice them, bless them, reward them. God sees through to the core of their heart. And so, and the next line says, you serve your own interests and oppress your workers. You're doing what you want. It's really, it's all about you and you're asleep to what's happening to those entrusted to your care. And then God, you heard, clarifies what makes for a true fast, a true worshiping Way uh, is, not, is this not the fast I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring homeless into your house, to cover the naked, to not hide from your kin or to be present with your kin? Jesus, you may recall, would eventually echo this sentiment among the religious leaders of his day. You're tithing, you're tithing your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important or more weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And much as Jesus is not trying to get rid of the importance of tithing, nor is God in today's scripture completely negating the spiritual discipline of, of fasting when one refrains from maybe food or drink for a time in a confessional, humble posture. But absolutely... God is vastly expanding the definition so that there is this confessional refrain from food for a season fast, and then centrally this fast of loosing chains, sharing bread, bringing in the homeless, covering the naked, being present with your kin, your family. God is about a fast that, that, is, that is confessional and spiritual growth and loosing chains, feeding the hungry. The late... 19th and early 20th century Scottish preacher P.T. Forsyth, I think he helps us appreciate how the two definitions of fasting might go together when he makes this observation. That which goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. If Jesus is the one who goes deepest to our hearts in worship, maybe through a practice like fasting, then it is impossible for our hearts not to slowly but surely go wider and wider unto this world because Jesus' heart is set on nothing short of the world. For God so loved the world. If we're going deeper with Jesus, we are inevitably in time going wider in love to the world. I think sometimes people have an aversion to the church or becoming a Christian uh, because they think if you really dive into the church, your world is going to shrink. Your concerns are going to become smaller. Church politics, church 
insider stuff. They'll consume your time, your imagination, and perhaps they've seen that happen. But the real truth is exactly the opposite. To receive the love of Jesus in a fresh and deep and fuller ways is inevitably to have our hearts not shrinking into smaller and smaller little concerns, but actually expanding outward unto our neighbors and this world, which are foremost on God's heart. One measure of Christian maturity might be this. As I scan the past five or ten years of my walk with Jesus, in what way is my heart more aware of or more loving to any of these groups mentioned here in Isaiah 58? Truth be told, I think a lot of us know of God's radical call unto the least, the vulnerable, the oppressed. Jesus, we know, began his ministry proclaiming good news to the poor, freedoms to the captive. This church has stepped in numerous ways in faithfulness in that very direction, meals on wheels being but one of many. But we also have our lives and and the demands of the church and our committees and the five other significant matters, quite frankly, that are pressing in on us. And, honestly, the needs of this world and even our community are so overwhelming and often so paralyzing the moment we start to try and pay attention to them, try and make a difference. I wonder if it sometimes feels the last thing we could possibly need this morning is a trumpet blaring into our ear about the least, the vulnerable, the oppressed, because even as it's convicting, even as it's true, even as, honestly, we ourselves are in their midst, it's, it's also tiring. Much more readily, I wonder if our hearts don't ache to hear Jesus calling softly, come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, that we might curl up in that pillow of grace. And yet here's the thing. What if God is barging in and waking us up and God's goal is actually to grant a remarkable rest. Not extra sleep, not slumber, but what if God is waking us up in order to give a genuine rest to us and neighbor? I mean, listen to some of the promises given in Isaiah 58 to those who live into a true fast. Your light shall break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up quickly. The Lord will satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water never fails. God does not promise more sleep. In fact, that seems to be the problem. God's people are asleep to the neighbors who are on God's heart. No, to the people afflicted and exhausted by all their faithfulness, the promise is rest. The kind of rest known when the soul is healed and has a renewed vitality all the way down to its bones. The kind of rest that is known when the soul is living out its full worth and beauty and light in this world. What if our deepest need is not more sleep, but a deeper rest? Who among us does not long for the promise of this wonderfully active rest depicted in the latter portion of Isaiah 58? And how does one step toward living in and receiving the gift 
Notice the verbs God gives when it comes to a true fast. To loose the bonds of injustice, share your bread with the hungry, bring in the homeless to your house, cover the naked, not hide or oppositely be present with your kin, your own family. Each verb involves a definite proximity to someone or someone's who is in some form of need or companionship. Now, we don't get the particulars of how precisely to live into these verbs or where to do it. We don't get particulars about what kind of people are deserving, as if any are deserving. Importantly, we're not instructed here to solve all the world's problems or any of them. That's actually God's job. Rather, we get a list of people, and every day, one step at a time, faithful actions. And again, quite importantly, they all are almost all actions that simply cannot be done unless you're quite near to another. Loose chain, share bread, bring into your house, cover the naked, don't hide from your kin, or be present with your family. It's the same point implied by Jesus in our passage from Matthew 5 today. You're the salt of the world. Salt is no good as a preservative or a flavor enhancer unless it's in and on the food, unless it's right there. And when we think about it, isn't that how Jesus first loved us and reconciled us unto himself? For the word became flesh, there's that Christmas message, and dwelt among us in person right here. And more than just show up in our mess, in our context, in our reality, Jesus takes it a step further and says, I have called you friends. He says this to the very people who would betray him, deny him, and fall asleep on him. Most fundamentally, Jesus feeds starving souls and starving bodies, homeless hearts and homeless bodies, even slumbering hearts and slumbering bodies. He feeds them by way of of befriending them. The verbs in Isaiah, they remind me of a story that Mark Laverton, now the president of Fuller Seminary, tells about a time when he was pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California. And the congregation had invited Bishop Zach Naringi from Uganda to be with them that weekend. And uh, part of the weekend with the bishop involved them watching this film, that's a few years old now, called The Invisible Children. Uh, maybe you've seen it about the horrific suffering of children abducted as soldiers in northern Uganda and, and families desperate to hide their children from abduction. And, and the film finishes and the congregants are just stunned and, and shocked and urgently asking, what should we do for the children of northern Uganda? And Bishop Zach Naringi says, you won't know what to do until they are first your children. Bishop Naringi is making the simple but profoundly central point that you really cannot know how to love a person or a people or a situation unless to some degree you know them as your people. I mean, goodness, who among us who's been a yeah, parent or teacher or coach, you, you know that every child is different and you really cannot love that child rightly until you know that child as yours. As I was writing this sermon, I, I thought about my own friendships. I realized the vast majority of them have a, a similar educational and socioeconomic background. And, and while I'm very much aware of the needs and hurts in those, that circle, I'm grateful that folks are aware of mine. Uh, 
I confess a great poverty of friendship among those who are impoverished or less resourced or those alien quiet spaces that are often out of the way or overlooked. And this thought just sort of caught me short as I'm working on this sermon in this particular passage. And, and I don't know if I thought I was going to make a new friend or what I thought, but I was just caught up in this idea of, of God's call to be proximate with neighbors. That is how God has first loved us. That I just got up and I walked out of the office and onto the Georgetown Square. And then I walked around a couple back alleys. I eventually went into the Georgetown Public Library. What a truly wonderful resource, as so many of you know. And I walked there because I heard it's sometimes a space for folks without a home to dwell for a bit. Well, about five minutes into my wandering, I see a man just around this corner I'm turning, kind of out of the, the way of, of most of what's going on in the library. His appearance, certainly more disheveled. His smell, uh, the kind one has when you're on the streets or at least without a shower for a few days. And he's trying to get his, his head comfortably rested into his hands with his eyes closed looking for some sleep or rest or perhaps both and part of me with this scripture in mind wanted to sit down and chat with him not in a swoop in and how can I save the day kind of mentality but just just chat but then honestly he was keeping his eyelids closed and so I stood back and I prayed, and, and I didn't have words for my prayers, but in this space of prayerfulness, I found myself thinking, I wonder how it would happen that he and I might not just cross paths, but know the kind of genuine friendship in which I need him and he needs me, and we are for each other. I wonder in what ways his rest and my rest are inexorably linked to one another. How did Martin Luther King Jr. put it? We're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. These were my thoughts. I do imagine many of us gather this morning amid any number of significant and real and pressing demands. And it may feel that really the main thing we could really use is 30 more minutes of sleep. It may be true. And Isaiah 58 is God barging in at four in the morning unto sleepy disciples, but only because God thinks what is primarily needed is not more sleep, but in fact, a deeper rest. May God awaken our hearts to the overlooked friends in our midst. Move our bodies unto loosing and feeding, clothing and being present. And in doing so, we will know ourselves a healing, a bone-deep strengthening, a steady spring of living water unto the soul. Because, of course, in doing all this, we will have encountered Jesus himself, right? Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you have done to me.